Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Eisen, and I invite you to join me in these candid kitchen table conversations, where together we celebrate these leaders' ingenuity, are inspired by their wisdom and wit, and learn how collectively we can all strive to do and be better. This is Dreaming in Color. Kali Abiyade is the Vice President of Programs at Pillars Fund, where she is responsible for sharpening the organization's strategy and collaborating across the team's extra pillars mission to amplify Muslim leadership toward opportunity and justice for all people. She draws on nearly two decades of experience advocating for equity and racial justice in media, policy, and philanthropy. Kalia has served as an organizer and policy advocate, advancing media accountability, immigrant and refugee rights, religious freedom, voter access, and civic participation. She began her career as a newspaper journalist and editor, and her analysis has been cited in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Nation, National Public Radio, and the Associated Press, among other outlets. Kalia was raised in California, is a graduate of the University of Florida, and lives with her family in Chicago. And while our conversation was recorded some months ago, it's beautifully fitting that it's being released now during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, a time for introspection, self-reflection, and gratitude, a time to celebrate family and community. Fasting from sunrise to sunset is important in Ramadan, but also important is nourishing one's soul through prayer and practice to be closer to Allah. In the words of the poet Alin, Ramadan opens doors of mercy each year, reconciling all our hearts on goodness, generosity, and forgiveness. And with that, Ramadan Mubarak to my Muslim friends and family. And here's hoping my conversation with Kalia brings us all some much-needed warmth and nourishment. Kalia, it's great to chat with you today. Hello. Good morning, Darren. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, can't complain. That's a loaded question, right? How, how are you doing? My mother was queen of that when folks were acting up in place, public spaces. She'd be like, are you okay? And you'd be surprised how often people are not okay. The answer is always no if your mom <laughs> says, are you okay? Okay, exactly. <laughs> like you're not behaving like you're okay. That said, I want to pass you the floor to start. As you know, I love for folks to kick us off with an invocation of sorts. What you got for us? My son, Adam, is a junior in high school, and he's finally encountered James Baldwin in school, which is right around the time that I also encountered James Baldwin for the mm, first time. People can't on my see own. my heart sigh when you oh. said that. You know, go ahead. <laughs> I think that's always a good place to start an excerpt from The Fire Next Time. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets, and one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole route of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible for life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying darkness from which we come and to which we all return. One must negotiate this as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. That's beautiful. James Baldwin always kind of hits the right spot, right? His thinking is just profound. And there is something to be said as well about the generational piece of those who come after. Uh, it's just a theme that's come up in many conversations, both within the podcast and outside of just a side story. This is hitting a little hard as well today because I was just early this week. Uh, we had a family friend who passed in New Orleans and I was sending flowers to them and I was just doing the calculation randomly, as one does. I was like, oh, the men in my family don't live past 70, mm. right? Like it's, yeah. and the women live, you know, they live a long time, but the men yeah. is like, and so you're sitting here being like one, trying to figure out how much of that is true for your generation and how much of that is generational. 
Yeah. I do feel like, you know, there are things that were generational from a health perspective, from a life perspective. And I do worry that sometimes racism in white America is more deadly than cigarettes for black folks Absolutely. in this space. So I, some things I don't do that, that I don't know if it's going to compensate for other things that I do. Yeah. And it seems like we're all holding so much grief these days, right? In ways that we didn't expect. And I know that's for me personally, but on a global scale. And I realized, you know, grief wasn't just going to be a visitor. Grief is here to stay. So how, you know, how do I grapple with it? And, and it comes up in so many conversations. So I've been trying to lean more into it instead of running away. 100%. As you know, I'm traveling for a, an event as we record and presenting some slides on some very important topic. And, you know, Bridge Band Partner, I always got my slides and they're pretty ones too. But I've just forced my team as we put together the decks uh, and the slides to just give kind of a, a blank page just to acknowledge the moment that we're in. Because right. we are living through a moment, right? Capital now. M moment. We are Capital really H history. living through some stuff. <laughs> and, and the colleague was like, well, what do you want to put on the slide? I was like, you know, an image or a number of images that like get at the Trump years, followed by COVID, followed by the civil rights movement that we had during that period, followed by you know, just the global warming and the fact that right now I just feel like we're just on for the ride. Like, what are we doing Holding today? Like, just, tight. just <laughs> Mother Nature, tell me what you're doing. I'm just, you know, just, but we are really living through a moment and I don't know we're going to, hopefully we will come out on the outside of this. I, I truly believe that I'm an optimist uh, in my heart and in spirit. So we'll get on the other side of this, but I don't think we'll realize what a moment we've been living through until we're on the other side of this, actually. Yeah. I mean, we all get there safely. <laughs> 100%. I do want to jump in. And Kalia, I just had the pleasure of working with you and being in rooms with you and spaces with you. And I always joke that the first time I met you, you just screamed California. Like you were just the most, <laughs> you just fit California to me. And then I learned that you were from and indeed had spent some time in your life in California. It all resonated. But I do want to give you just some space to share your origin story. I don't know if you did this on purpose, but that is like the best thing you could have said to me because I'm always like California <laughs> uh, for life. Um, I was actually born in Fresno in the Central Valley uh -huh. and I'm a granddaughter of Filipino immigrants and the granddaughter of black migrants from Texas and Oklahoma to the Bay Area. So Great I feel migration. like classic yeah. migration story, classic California story, right? Filipino and black um, growing up in the heart of that state. And even though I left at 14, when I go back, I, that's, I go home, right? And I feel the sun feels different there. It permeates my skin in a really different way. And as a parent, I feel like I'm always telling my children these back home stories, right? But my back home is California and they experience that when they go. I feel like there's so much meaning. And I didn't know this until I did a public narrative workshop with Marshall Gans at Harvard mm -hmm. in the Kennedy School. And he started just asking me questions one after another. And then why do you do this? And why do you do that? And where did that come from? And I got all the way back to him plucking the story out of me where I realized when I said earlier, capital H history, that my family had that. We all do, right? But uh, my grandfather who migrated from the Philippines came through Alaska, down the coast into California and was a farm worker in Delano, right? So the Delano Manongs and the, mm -hmm. you know, the Filipino uncles mm -hmm. there who were working the land. And then my grandmother, when she moved from Texas, she moved into a home with uh, somebody we called Big Dad. And so I never asked questions about who he was. I just knew that that was our relative who she came and settled with. And she was 19. Um, and this was the 1940s. And 
his name is actually some a name known to very many people. C.L. Dellums. He was one. <laughs> oh, wow. The, the, the face over here is, oh, wow. Okay. Yes. It, I was like, oh, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. As I learned about, you know, his activism with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters and that my dad, as like a 17-year-old kind of rubble graduate from Berkeley High School, they didn't know what to do with him when you were asking earlier, like, what is wrong with you, right? He was like, I don't know. He went and actually worked as a porter in 1970, right after high school, before he went to college and everything, because they were like, we don't know what to do with you. You're Mm. just, you know, Mm -hmm. sneaking into Jimi Hendrix concerts Mm -hmm. and doing what teenagers do in Berkeley. Get on this train to Chicago and shine some shoes and come home. And my grandparents on the Filipino side were also labor activists. They brought that with them. My grandmother was a nurse. My grandfather eventually was an electrician and they were very, very deeply rooted in labor work in California. And so I just realized, you know, you think you get to a place on your own, right? You're like, I did this. And then you realize like how just intertwined every step is so like ordered, right? In a way that you're like, do did I make any choices here? But um, no, the answer is, you know, a, a few choices. But I'm really fortunate to have that history to lean on, um, to have parents who carried that tradition and to be able to have these stories that I now can tell my kids when I talk about back home, it's more than just about the fruit that I picked off of our backyard trees, which are really important stories for us, but also these like ways that my family was deeply involved in you know, trying to make things better for other people. This is wonderful. And I'm laughing over here because I think that's, to me, what makes you very Californian, right? We're living the stories that were handed to us uh, from our ancestors, and we're lucky enough to live those stories. I think what, to me, makes California, California is that the intersectional nature of those stories. Communities that one would see as fairly disparate. In actuality, there's so much alignment. There's such a common thread. And I joke all the time, and I may have shared this story with you before, how when I arrived at Howard for undergrad, Howard was a very interesting place, and in the best way possible, I loved my Howard years. Uh, it was like this, you know, this black campus. This is a campus of middle-class black kids from around the country who were escaping white people for four years was the goal, right, after being educated around white people our entire lives. I'm with that. So culturally, it was, you know, there was some regional distinctions, uh, obviously, but there was also a, a very common black American thread, right? Um, and then came the Californians. The Californians <laughs> were Californian first. Like, you could see right. them... But the things that their California identity did not at all conflict with their black identity, right? Like it was yeah. almost, it, it was perfectly aligned. And I used to joke that, you know, the ultimate Howardite wanted to be an Oaklander, right? It was a city that gave you MC Hammer, yeah. you know, in Vogue, the Black Panthers within eight blocks of each other. Like that right. it was like all right there, right? Like these intersectional identities coming together in a way that was 100% true. It was 100% a manifestation of all these narratives in a way that was sincere and beautiful. And then you came with also like we're the Western state. You come here to tell a new story and folks ain't got nowhere else to go. So you got to have a culture that can accommodate all those stories, right? Like right? get in where you fit in. We'll make a narrative that's inclusive enough. It's a beautiful manifestation of, I think, what we hope America should be. I will say people did not know what to do with me when I moved to Florida as a 14 year old. They were like, what are you? Where did you come from? And why do you talk like that? 100% California. Okay, thank you. Yeah, my husband and I travel all the time. Uh, my husband's Chinese American and fifth generation Californian, right? From yep. Santa Cruz uh, Peninsula. Uh, but we travel all the time to Asia. And, you know, he looks ethnically Chinese as he is, but he also looks very Western. So people assume that he's like Singaporean or, or Hong Kong. You know, they're trying right. to figure out where he's from. And they see my, my black butt traveling with him. Like, who's what's going on here? 
And so they'll ask, like, where are you guys from? We say, oh, California. They're like, oh, that Got oh, okay. it. makes sense. That's a box check. A lot of funders may still be relatively new to the idea of intersectionality. I know, <laughs> but it's, it's a thing, right? <laughs> How do your intersecting identities shape your experiences? It's great when you grow up and you learn that there's a name for the things that you've experienced growing up. You're like, wow, you have these frameworks and theories. But I think Isabel Wilkerson changed my life when I read her book, mm. um, The Warmth of Other Suns. And I live now on King Drive in Bronzeville in Chicago, right? So Chicago Defender, and it's like a site of the Great Migration. So I think of migration as one of those stories of intersection that we don't talk about very often, something that connects us. We all have them either, you know, some folks, we've all migrated in some way, whether that was by choice or not. Um, and we're seeing this play out over and over. And I think so much of that just has to do with self-determination, hmm. um, has to do with being able to make choices about your life and what happens when we don't have choices in our life, right? So I that may not answer exactly the intersectional conversation, but for me, that's where it all comes together. Because as I started, you know, my family's stories are, yes, about people coming from overseas and coming across land. But what kind of tied them together was this experience of migration and trying to find and make a home in where they were and live their best lives. And I think that's what so many of us are trying to do. Yes, 100%. As a New Orleans boy, I don't necessarily believe in the melting pot theory, but I do believe in the layering of flavors uh, yes. and complexity of flavors. And, you know, good gumbo is like, it's a cop. You can taste every ingredient, right? And, and even the traditional ingredients change as other words are added to them, right? So they carry what they were before, but they become something that's more dynamic and beautiful. Uh, and I think of intersectionality as being that in, in many ways as well as being able to pull the best uh, from those various cultures and play them out in a way that's beautiful and meaningful and honors those folks that came before you as well. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about true Muslim identity as well. And as you know, giving to those in need is a core practice in Islamic faith, right? I'm referring to zakat uh, or almsgiving, one of the five pillars of Islam. As a leader in the philanthropic space, the act of giving to those in need is literally part of your role at Pillars Fund and part of your chosen role within the social sector. Silly question. Is that a coincidence, Kalia? <laughs> well, again, apparently I have no control over my life, so maybe not. <laughs> Um, it's interesting because I, I didn't grow up Muslim, but I, it's another layer here of the story as I came to Islam in my early 20s, very much also, I'm going to talk about my dad a lot, I'm realizing, but very much inspired by his experience, you know, in the Bay Area, having this familiarity that a lot of Black people do with Muslims in Islam, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that we got bean pies out of somebody's trunk and, you know, like sort of dancing around some time with the nation. But I, I came to this, this faith in my, in college. And it's interesting because zakat is not just something that we do or that's encouraged, but it's actually like a requirement, right? Um, for any people who have excess wealth, it's a requirement that we give 2.5% of it to very specific categories of people in need, not just like, you know, to your neighbor, but people who, unless your neighbor is in, you know, this particular need. It's, it's strategic, if you will. Strategic yes. philanthropy, right? <laughs> just, you know, if somebody wants to know your theory of change, it's right in there. If we, you know, give money to free people who are in bondage, they will live better lives, right? That, that is in the Quran, like people in bondage are one of the categories of people that you can give to. So we have a grantee, right, who believers bail out. That's what they do day after day is they bail people out of jail who haven't had a trial yet. 
And so I feel really fortunate that at Pillars, we get to bring uh, some of that you know, that obligation to the work, but then also we get to bring a lot of fun because outside of what's required of that 2.5% or this annual giving that we do, there's just a lot of generous people in the community. And we have these stories that go way, way back on this land, right? Where we know of enslaved Africans who were gathering what they could to give to one another as a practice of their faith. Hmm. Um, And that continues today. And so now we get to, you know, we definitely get to have a lot more fun with it. Uh, we get to expand our idea of strategic philanthropy to support Muslim leadership, but it's never too far from the core of that obligation. Wonderful. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how your faith as a Muslim woman influences your perspective and decision making as a leader in philanthropy. I love stories of how people have adopted faith as a way of freeing themselves, right? Like the, the faith allows them to live into themselves more fully and powerfully. So I would love to hear more about that. And then as a leader, how does that play out as well? A leader. Well, (laughs) first of all, when I walk in a room, people already have a story about me that Mm. they've created in their minds. I'm Mm. constantly mindful of that. I think that's something that many of us bring from childhood, even before I was, you know, covering my hair and showing up in places that people could label me as a Muslim woman or a Muslim girl. People were always like, what are you? What's going on? What's your agenda? So I think a lot of that is just owning that, that there is an expectation of me when I show up in a place that I'm going to um, not shy away from that identity. And I've never been one to shy away from any parts of my identity, but also to say, what does this add to the conversation? What are we not talking about? Or who is not in here? Who should be? And I really, really benefit from so many people that we get to work with. But one person I'll name right now, Hussein Rashid, who is one of our Muslim Narrative Change Fellows and an academic. He's affiliated with Pillars as a Muslim Narrative Change Fellow. He reminds us all the time that there's never been an America without Muslims. And I already mm-hmm. mentioned, right, the um, enslaved Africans who were brought here as, you know, many of them Muslim. And we have a grantee in Jackson, Mississippi, who reminds us that at one point in Jackson, there's believed to be more Muslims in that space than Christians because of the number of enslaved people and where they came from to Jackson, Mississippi, that area. So that's one thing is that knowing that I'm not creating a new history, I'm not creating a new story, I'm just sort of shining light on something that has actually been part of our history for a really long time. And then the other question that comes in my mind a lot is uh, from somebody, Rashid Shabazz, who's on our board. And many people may know him from his days of color at Color of Change and now with Critical Minded. But he asked us, you know, what doesn't exist in this space, in the society without Muslims? And so that's the challenge, right? We can't just rest on our history. We also have to be, what are we continuously contributing to conversations that wouldn't necessarily exist without us in the room? And believing that each one of us actually has something unique to contribute, right? We don't need a particular expertise or these degrees. Um, they enhance or, you know, maybe get us in rooms we might not have been in otherwise. But once we're in that room, then what are we contributing and what are we making new? So I think those are the things that I think about when I show up in spaces is like, how am I adding to this conversation? Um, How are we not leaving people of all different kinds of faiths, you know, outside of the room, but also not limiting myself to faith, right? Like being Muslim has so many dimensions that are, you know, start with my faith, but also are really interwoven into history and culture, arts and music and family in ways that I don't think we get to talk about enough. Yeah, well, it's definitely, I mean, a religious movement, but as well as a cultural movement, right? And so how do you celebrate sure. that in a way that gets at the plurality of voices and perspectives? Muslim Americans have 
experienced increased representation in national forums, media, government, or in the past 30 years or so. Um, but with every group and every situation, we're in a moment. I would love for you to share how would you define the moment in history for Muslim Americans, particularly individuals who identify as Black and Muslim? I mean, that's a big old question that you could probably give a full thesis and TED Talk on. <laughs> what I love about what's happening right now is there's a lot less, and I would say this is probably at least in my experience, never been the case in Black Muslim communities, but collectively, a lot less apologizing for taking up space, right? Mm. We're here. We've been here. We're not going anywhere, <laughs> right? And you actually benefit from having us in the room, right? So there's this whole, you know, check us out versus let us in dichotomy. We're not asking you to let us in. We're having this incredible party, this incredible gathering, this incredible space, and you are more than welcome to join we're, us. We're dope as hell over here. Right. right. <laughs> we're holding it down. And like, you can hang out with us if you want to, but also we're going to be okay if we're not accepted, right? We have to build our own ways of being okay, knowing that so many of our communities have not been and will never be accepted by, you know, what's been deemed dominant culture. Um, and so I think just seeing a lot of people settle into that, get comfortable in that. And as a parent also, I'm seeing that with, you know, that's really important for me with my boys. I have black, three black Muslim boys, right? That's a lot of layers. And I want them to that's go a lot. The world. You can stop right there. That's a lot. Right? It's just a lot. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's loud. First of all, it's a lot of noise, <laughs> but it's just a lot for them to carry. And as you started the conversation about, you know, the weight that a lot of black men um, carry. I'm thinking about that for my 16 year old, my 12 year old, my five year old, right? Like, what are we putting on them? I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I want to help create a space where they can carry less or it's not as heavy or something. And I'm seeing that happen, you know, in a lot of our work at Pillars. I'm just so grateful that people are just showing up with, you know, with that framework and some joy, right? We got to have some fun in this because we, you know, there's always been fun through all the hardships that we can document over history. People have found a way to connect, to build relationship, create joy. And I'm really just, this is a, as hard as everything is, it's kind of a fun time right now. It's a connected time that I feel like we're experiencing. Yeah. The role of joy in sustaining us and, and giving us something to look forward to. That's a really important theme that carries through in all these conversations. Um, I do want to acknowledge, I mean, you, you talk about this tension of one, particularly those of us who work with certain communities, traditionally marginalized communities. We're at a very interesting space right now where there is an outside interest, if you will, in what we're doing and how we're living uh, and a desire to take advantage of that olive branch to some degree uh, and bring people along in the story, but also recognition that we have to have our own systems and our own approaches and our own stories and our own identities. And so it's this constant like, how much do we focus internally as we think about the work? Right. And how much do we focus externally and bring others along? And I think that I've heard so many others share that you focus externally by focusing internally, right? <laughs> you, you have to really think about what's your story that you're holding um, together as a community. What's the story that you're telling for yourself and owning that narrative in right. a way that you know, it makes it easier to bring others along? I would love to get your thoughts on how do you really aim to reshape the narrative pertaining to Muslim Americans in the U.S. when it comes to elevating the voices of the community? What are people getting right? Uh, where are there opportunities to improve? Um, and how do we really you know, share the plurality of the community 
while right. keeping a common thread and keeping a community focus, if you will. I think you're right. First, about looking inward first before we go out. Right. So that's one thing. The Muslim ban, I think, was the perfect example of this, where here came this big, big policy idea from a big, big personality, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A big, loud personality named okay. Donald Trump. Right? So he wasn't the, the first person to propose something like that, but he's the first person just to say it out loud, say all the quiet parts. Shamelessly, shamelessly. Shout them <laughs> from the rooftops. And I think that was a real moment of reckoning within Muslim communities, right? In all of the different identities, all the different experiences where there was potentially an urge to say like, hey, we're okay. We're safe. We're just like you, right? All of these, these urges that people have that are completely understandable. Uh, we saw that, you know, in 2001, where my local community invited the FBI to our mosque as a peace offering. And we were like, you know, the black Muslims were like, hey, you don't do that. <laughs> you don't like, can we talk? Like we need to have a conversation. So I don't think we made that exact mistake, right? After the Muslim ban, but the work that needed to be done was anti-racism within the community. That work to identify the ways that internalized racism and anti-black racism were like permeating the Muslim community and I still mean, it's, do. It's America. It's everywhere, right? So Everywhere, right? We weren't the only ones. And I mean, we we can look at any subgroup and be like, oh yeah, there's anti-blackness within black communities. So I was going to say, we could have a whole conversation <laughs> about anti-blackness within black America. So yeah. Right. So it wasn't necessarily meant to be an indictment, but to say like, hey, if we better understand how this is functioning within our communities, then we can also you know, sharpen our tools to fight it externally and understand that like the root of so much of this, maybe not all of it, but like so, so much of it is anti-blackness at its core. And if we can figure out how to undo that, we can probably figure out how to undo other forms of racism. So that was something that I think Muslim communities that we get to work with are really, really leaning into now, but was a huge conversation around the Muslim ban because we had to make some choices about how we showed up collectively, how we fought for certain policies, who we, you know, making sure we didn't leave people behind or throw folks under the bus, who was being targeted and how, what would have been the faster way to like get hmm. approval from the, you know, external communities with improvement. There's always work to do there, right? But that's ongoing. That'll be lifelong work for so many of us. And so I think uh, the places that I want to improve are resourcing this work the way that it needs to be. And that comes from within the Muslim community, but also outside of the Muslim community. And again, that comes, I think, from our shared, this sort of shared destiny, right? Like mm -hmm. we could be considered a canary in a coal mine. If, you know, if this is happening to Muslim communities, it can happen and has happened to so many others. So it's in our collective interest to do this right. And this isn't a favor that you're doing to the Muslim community by supporting it. It's not a favor that we're doing, you know, we're doing toward our grantees when we support their work. It's because they are actually, we believe they're actually making things easier for us in the long run. Um, and so I think that's a big improvement because <laughs> before coming to Pillars, I spent several years really immersed in what the far right was doing in terms of anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant policy. They are organized. They are well-funded. They're coordinated and they're connected to policymakers. And I don't sometimes think people understand how intentional everything that is happening is. And so we have to be more intentional, right? We have to be more 
generous and more strategic and more focused and more like loving with one another because they're they're not doing it from a place of love. So we've got that on our side. Um, and I think that's also just how we share in that plurality, right? Is understanding that interconnectedness that if we're supporting each other's work, it's because, you know, it sounds kind of kumbaya. I, I get it. But I truly believe like if we understand that, you know, that what I was saying before, um, that there's never been an America without Muslims, right? That these stories are connected. If we, if we can figure out how to end surveillance on Muslim communities, we can probably end surveillance for a lot of people. We've sort of surveillance is one of those things we've just sort of accepted in society, yep. right? Where there's cameras everywhere, but so much of their surveillance mechanism that exists across our country is rooted in very, very anti-Muslim language policy and framework. So it's really to our benefit and it's not, a favor we should collaborate with one another but it's actually not a favor that we're doing to one another when we support the work yeah when trump was elected you know my dad would say slow that train down right that train is always on time and never misses a stop right like it starts with immigrants muslims it goes through gay folks jewish folks black folks it is coming to your stop you better you better stop that train right and so i think that there's something to be said about the interconnected narrative there i do think there is something really powerful about the normalizing of plurality within a community and the normalizing of you know different narratives and and allowing people just to be right the radical piece of like yep tell stories about yourself just your stories you don't there's no narrative here that you have to follow, right? And it reminds right. me of, you know, my first year or second year when I was at Howard, I remember visiting a friend in the quad, these new, were new dorms at the time, I'm sure they're old now, walked up to the entrance and from one window to the right, the Fujis were blasting, right? Yeah. And from, I'm old. The Fu- <laughs> That's my era. <laughs> and then from another window to the left, the cranberries were blasting from this black yeah. dorm room, right? And I was like, yep. I guess the cranberries are black music. If black people are listening to it, it's black music, right? This idea, if you're doing it. For sure. It's yours, right? Like, how do you own that authentically? And it gives you a sense of belonging in the space. But it also, in some ways, shows that it's all very natural. It makes complete sense. So there's something really beautiful about sharing those stories. I do want to spend just a little time talking about Grantmakers for Effective Organizations in 2022 National Conference of Chicago. You encourage funders to go deeper with grantees. One great recommendation you offer was for grantmakers to shadow their grantees, uh, to learn from them and experience things from their perspective. I would love to hear you share just what are some additional ways grantmakers can establish empathy and understanding with grantees? I mean, it's clearly a lesson that you've learned working within your community that is not only valid, but important <laughs> for the larger sector. So I would love to hear other, others that you've you know, learned from, you know, your work that grandmakers can be taking on from an empathy perspective or just really serving organizations or communities better? On purpose, I want to learn from our grantees. I believe that they are the experts of their communities, um, that they can tell us a lot. But also sometimes we come into these spaces and expect them to teach us everything. (laughs) And so I think there's some pre-work that can be done. And I think that's one of the things I appreciated so much about you when we first met is like, we didn't feel like we were explaining Muslims to you, right? Yeah, a little experience. (laughs) Right? A little like, you know. My job uh, is to be curious and get smart. Awareness of the world, right? Um, But there are times when you're like, wow, you've maybe you should pick up a book 
read, you know, just something. It is shocking, though, how people grow up in really homogenous. <laughs> like, have you met anyone? Like, what is yeah. that? I mean, wow. Right. I think it's just the level of I mean, that for me, it's a key tenant of privilege being yeah. able to only have lived around people that look and think and act exactly like you. And having that not be seen as a sign of provincialism. Listen, if I was a black boy from New Orleans, if and, and that's a rich culture, but if that's all that I knew, yeah. how that would be received in the world, right? But people are completely unapologetic, only knowing their little world. It's like, that is really problematic, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never known what it's like, right? Like being coming from a multiracial household, there are very few times that I found people who are just like me. I was always just a little on the side, even with my cousins, right, who loved mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was always just a little somewhere, not, mm -hmm. uh, not always in the center. And so that is something that is very unfamiliar to me and very curious to me, right? Like, I wonder how, how this is comfortable for you. Because I think what that built in me is a sense of curiosity about mm -hmm. people and wanting to come to conversations informed about what I was asking about. And I think the thing that's most interesting for me when it comes to pillars and the work that we support and supporting Muslim communities and then speaking with other, other funders and thinking about what some of our grantees may be experiencing and hearing directly from them what they may be experiencing is the shock and surprise that people hear about like our racial demographics, for example, right? That about a third of us are Black. We're not, you know, predominantly immigrants. Many of us do have migration stories, but that's not actually, you know, that's, it, it, they come and go. Plus, we've got folks who've been here for generations, Syrian communities and Yemeni communities who have just been here, have deep, deep roots. I think that is the thing that's most shocking to so, I wish I could say not so many people, but a lot of people that I talk to who are genuinely interested in funding Muslim communities and are asking us for advice on how to do that. And then they're like, whoa, this changes everything. And I'm like, okay, what? tell me, say more, say more. How, what does this change exactly for you? Going back to intersectionality, we can unlock so many possibilities for partnership when people realize like, oh, we don't only have to enter this through a faith lens, because I think sometimes people get a little weird about religion. And I get that, right? Like, I understand that that is a prevailing attitude. A lot of people have complicated uh, relationships with their personal religion. And I mm -hmm. completely understand and respect that. But we are so much more than that. <laughs> and so what we say is, you know, to your point about the cranberries and the Fujis, if Muslims are experiencing it, it's a Muslim issue, period. Period. Right? It does not have to be surveillance. It does not have to be racial or religious profiling. It doesn't have to be hate crimes. Those are also things that our communities are dealing with. But if healthcare, mental health support, reproductive justice, gender justice, right? so many things, education, uh, access to education, those are Muslim issues. And Sorry, I'm laughing so hard at this Cranberries example because sorry, no, it's, it's a great one, though, right? <laughs> my, my middle son, I was just flipping through the radio and four non-blondes are on. <laughs> and I was like, uh, Musa, this is a great song. And he's like, Mom, you've been spending the last like several years like trying to instill certain, you know, like just make sure I know certain things like Stevie, Lauren, course, <laughs> Donny Hathaway, like, like, you know, these things. But he's like, this doesn't 
does not this compute. This He's like, I don't understand. I was like, no, sorry, you have to know this song. What's up? There's four non-blondes. You got to sing it with all your chest. This is good stuff. Good stuff. You got to have these cultural points. So these are touch yes. points, right? It doesn't make you any less of anything. Not you know at it. all. In fact, it makes you even more of whatever it is, right? Because you can actually stand steadfast in your yep. cultural awareness and appreciate something that doesn't it may fall without fall outside up. It's actually pretty linked from a thread perspective, right? I yep. appreciate that. Now, that's story. I'd laugh about that all the time. <laughs> You've already started talking about this, but if you can share just a little bit more, I would love, you know, you have the floor for funders that are looking to incorporate more of an intersectional lens into their decision making. And I think one of the things that I'm always trying to encourage folks is like, how do you center intersectionality as opposed to, oh, it's a nice to have. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, because uh, I think the answer is there in there at the intersections. Right. And so what suggestions do you have for funders that are looking to incorporate intersectional lenses in their, into their decision making in their work? Any thoughts there? Where we start is getting a little uncomfortable. I think as soon as I start feeling a little like, yeah, I know this. I think that's a good chance to challenge myself. And I know that's pretty basic and a lot of people do it. But there are a lot of assumptions that I think we make about each other and what we know, organizations that we've already heard of. So when something new lands on our desk, it's kind of like, why haven't I ever heard of this? Mm -hmm. It's like, maybe because the more I, at least I find the more I'm in philanthropy, the further I sometimes feel from the work that we're supporting, unless I'm actively going out to participate in it or actively taking part in learning about it. So one of the things that we did um, a few years ago was just identified, you know, the, these five traits of a leader, a little listicle. Mm -hmm. um, but one of those was about just, you know, an organization that em a leader who empowers other people in their midst, right? It's not just one leader. And we have heard a lot about leaderful movements and leaderful organizations. But I think for me, that's where I would, where I start when I'm, uh, and what I encourage other folks to do too, is if you're only hearing from one person within one organization, and that's a, something to probe a little bit more because the more voices you add, <laughs> you just ask some questions. I don't know. I'm over, folks can't see it all. I'm making the face like, yeah, that's a good starting point. <laughs> you have oh, these organizations no, that I you did. just hear from that one person everywhere. <laughs> and for me, that asks that like definitely poses more questions than it provides answers because I'm like, mm -hmm. what? What <laughs> inputs really going on? Yeah. are going into this strategy development? And even though it might look on paper that, you know, everybody is from the same community or everyone has the same experience, the more you plumb, like everyone's bringing those intersectional identities into the strategy or into that organization. And so I think that is where, for me, that's where I start is looking for organizations that encourage other people to lead from within their communities, within their organizations, mm -hmm. or encourage, you know, some of their quote unquote stakeholders, people mm -hmm. working with them in the communities. Um, and we had this incredible experience with a grantee in Detroit when we asked them a question. We were having a sort of community dinner. And we said, like, hey, if resources were not an issue, no obstacles, what would you do? And the founder or the executive director of that organization kind of sat back in his chair and turned the floor over to all of the community members who were in wow. the room. It's like, we're being asked this question, what do you all think? And from there, we had an intergenerational response, right? We had people who grew up in that neighborhood, people who came from other places and decided to settle in that community. For me, that's where it starts. I'm wanting to hear, it takes more time, but I want to hear more voices from the people that we're funding, not just the same person over and over. 
I love that response for a number of different reasons. One, I think that this whole idea of power seeding is one that's really, you know, relevant within a philanthropic world. And, and the way you teed it up, it's like how organizations power seeding within organizations Absolutely. and within their communities, which is really, really powerful. You mentioned your three boys, uh, and it's sometimes been on my mind a lot recently as well as I watched my sister uh, with my nephew turns five this year. And it's very interesting thinking of what do we pass on to our children in the next generation? And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And I asked the question because my sister, interestingly enough, as I watch her with my nephew, she really wants him to be free. And that sounds like such a silly thing to say, but like she's really like, you know, there was a a beautiful uh, piece that I saw in New York some months ago. And it was a play about this teacher working at a school uh, for kids in a correctional facility. And he said that his ultimate goal was to make sure that the boys stayed soft, mm. which was such a powerful statement. Um, yeah. It's radical, right? Like, yeah. we do not encourage black boys to be soft. That is not, I no. mean, the exact opposite. And I see it in my sister, like, you know, with the, let him grow his hair out. Sure, why not? Not, you know, not, not the haircut, not the fresh fade at one, right? Or <laughs> let him wear colors. Like, literally just thinking through all the things where she's, encouraging him to, you know, not put on armor too early, right? You have your whole life to to put on armor. How do I allow you to be a child? How do I allow you to be free? In a world where freedom is not allowed, in a world where being soft is not celebrated. And so I'm just wondering, I mean, if any of that resonates for you. I'm breathing deeply. Yeah. What are we doing for the next generation? How How do we allow them to live into their beauty, live into their freedom, at the same time knowing that we're in a world that we're in a world that's toxic as hell, right? Yeah. Uh, and we want them to be strong as well. On the personal front, in our family, my stepdaughter is a graduate of Xavier University of Louisiana. And we believe in HBCUs for our children. Yep. We said, like, you can go wherever you get money, but our money is going to HBCUs for you. And we want you to have those, you know, four years or whatever it is to just feel, you know, the complexity, but also the embrace of, you know, being in that space and not having to define yourself, define your blackness, at least, right? You'll mm-hmm. define yourself and figure that out. Well, it gives you space to define other things, right? Right. Have- Within this, like, understanding that that's not going to be questioned of you. That's what we're thinking about all the time inside of our home is just how do you not feel like you have to answer to everybody for everything about everything. I, I have anecdotes for every little thing, but I thinking again about Adam in fourth grade, having to answer in a classroom, a teacher, well-meaning, Adam, what do you, as a Muslim, what do you think of 9-11? He's like, I'm nine. Great. Like, <laughs> I was born in 2006. First of all, what is 9-11? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, so she showed a little video and then, but the kids knew to be like, but Adam's not, you know, Adam's cool. And so she thought she was doing a good thing. And you're always going to run into these well-meaning people. Yeah. You know, well-meaning teachers, well-meaning white women. Folks can't, who, see, my, <laughs> folks can't <laughs> see my raised eyebrows over here. Yes. You will always run into them. That's for damn sure. You will always yes. run into them. And so how do you, you know, just feel comfortable? And God knows they mean well. They, they mean do. so well. And we've all, we've all experienced it. And, uh, you know, bless their, bless their hearts. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that we did not talk about yet, but with Pillars, we're doing... Um, we're doing work to support filmmakers, writers, directors mm-hmm. who are just sharing our stories on screen. And they can be stories that are not perfect. And I think that's the thing that we're trying to encourage with our children, our communities, is that you don't actually have to show up perfectly every time, right? That's the that's the FBI reception at the mosque too, right? Mm-hmm. We can actually 
be flawed human beings and still be accepted. We can actually show some stories that are not PR campaigns for our community and it's still going to be okay. And I think about that, you know, obviously I think about that in my home first, but it extends to all of these, you know, all of these communities that we're supporting. And that's why we're supporting um, mental health work as core to what we're doing, because we are going to run into these people in these situations. We want them to have a soft place to land as well. And so it's starting inside, but I think it's rippling out through the community. That's a good one. And actually I have, you know, my team has all kind of notes on you. And so there's a wonderful quote. I'll, I'm going to quote you in your own oh, wow. We're not looking for a perfect Muslim store. We're not looking to prove to you that we're all so great. We're looking for range provocative stories that offer dignified portrayals of our community, but full of the mess and nuance and beauty that exists across the human experience. And that's just lovely. I'm going to start using that one. My grandmother used to always say, God's greatest gift to man was that of free will. Like the, we were allowed to live as we yeah. liked and our gift back is to live our lives as beautifully as possible. And there's some beauty in that messiness. Uh, and it's our job to make sure that it's celebrated. I do want to end by making space for joy. And joy is so important to this work, is so important to the culture. You carry so much joy and I really appreciate that. And I love that. I would love to know, how are you, how do you maintain that? How do you keep that joy flowing? I mentioned I'm having a lot of fun right now. As, as hard as everything is, I've been one of those people who finally learned how to create some compartmentalization <laughs> in my <laughs> life. Close the laptop sometimes and um, I get in the kitchen. And not pick and I, up the phone. <laughs> I, I try. I try. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, my boss. We are chatting all the time and it's awesome. He's we, fun uh, though too, though. He's, he's fun so though. much fun. No, that's yeah. it's, it's never anything serious. We are able to connect um, on a personal level and, you know, through work and it's all, it's all tangled up. But lately I've been, I've just been going back to baking. I know that's, it's just, it does, it does the thing for me, right? I just use my hands. I bring the kids in there. We make ice cream. We make bread. This is a sort of regular occurrence in our household. And it's just nice to be able to create something in the midst of all of this destruction. No, 100%. Baking stresses me out, but I love to cook, oh. but baking stresses me mm. out. The exactness of it all. You can't fix yeah. things if it's broken too far. No, that is exactly, I, I need it to be perfect, Interesting. Right. No, no, totally. The, it is the exactness. Well, I think in some ways we're all perfect recipes or perfect dishes of ingredients and recipes coming from previous generations, as you I noted. So thank you for all that you do. Great chatting with you. And I'll talk with you later. Thank you so much. Of course. My paternal grandfather, Joseph, was orphaned as an infant. His parents, Joseph Pierre and Lucrece, both died within six months of his birth from the malady, as the Spanish flu was called in New Orleans. With their deaths, he was sent from their home in New Orleans' Coliseum Square to live with his maternal grandparents upriver in Edgar. They both died before he was 10, and he went just a little further upriver to live with his paternal grandparents in St. James Parish. By the time my grandfather made his way back to New Orleans to finish high school and prepare for university, he lost four sets of caretakers, including his parents, his maternal and paternal grandparents, and his mother's eldest sister and her husband who'd invited him into their home after their father's parents died. Despite a childhood that was marked by tragedy, my grandpa Joseph had nothing but wonderful stories to tell from what he characterized as a very privileged childhood. From Grandpa Adler and Grandma Teresa's big pale greenhouse on River Road, with a grand music room and a balcony view of the passing ships, to Grandma Sidonie's hat shop with a hidden feather vault just below Grandpa Oscar's office on Zanun Street. He always had, as Kalia conjured, a soft place to land. Grandpa Joseph's been gone for over 30 years now, 
but his story reminds me that my story is an old and beautiful one, shaped partially by the times we're living through, but mostly by the love that abounds throughout. A legacy of love and soft landings, well worth celebrating and living forward. Well, y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridgeband supported Studio Pop Media production. Special shout outs to our wonderful show producers, Teresa Buchanan and Denise Savas, our video editors, Dave Clark McCoy, Diana Radaelli, and Alejandro Ramirez, our graphic designer, Diana Jimenez, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge shout out to our ever brilliant Bridgeband production team and family, Cora Daniels, Jasmine Relaford, Ami Diane, Christina Pistorius, and Ryan Winsel. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk soon.